Gracious God, you've promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, uh, let me begin with a question. Which of the following poses the greatest threat to you? Which poses the greatest danger to you? Your sins or your good works? It's a fair question in light of our gospel reading for this morning. The Pharisee in our gospel lesson is by all appearances a very good man. Not only does he keep the law of Moses, he exceeds the requirements of the law. He fasts more than the law demands. He tithes more than the law demands. He goes above and beyond what is required. And yet, all of his good works, all of his self-sacrifices have become a millstone around his neck. There's nothing wrong with good works. They are good in and of themselves, and we encourage them. But they become an occasion for sin when we place our confidence in them rather than in the mercy of God. Good works, even good works, become an occasion for sin when, having done them, we look down on those who haven't. Even good works become an occasion for sin when we view them as a measuring stick by which we compare ourselves with others who maybe haven't brought their pledge forward on Pledge Sunday or who haven't volunteered or who haven't contributed as much as we. Page 10 in your bulletin, our gospel reading for this morning Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Let me ask you this. Have you ever looked down on others whom you felt were not pulling their weight? Or perhaps they weren't doing as much as you? Evidently, Jesus had followers like that. That's why he tells the parable in our lesson this morning. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, in Western culture, when we hear that someone is going up to pray, we think of private devotions, sort of a personal quiet time, personal prayer time. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. In the Bible, going to the temple to pray is often being part of a public service, a, a large gathering of people. For example, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go up to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. That's 3 p.m. And at that hour, 3 p.m., a spotless, unblemished lamb is sacrificed for the sins of the people. 
Now this took place twice a day, actually 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And after the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was shed, the way to God in heaven was opened up so that God would then hear the individual prayers of the people gathered there. And, and I believe, you don't have to believe this, but I believe the Pharisee and the tax collector are engaging in that sort of a public service. The lamb is being sacrificed, heaven is opened, God will now hear their prayers. And I say that for two reasons. First, both the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple at the same time, and I think it's reasonable to assume they're leaving at the same time, which suggests some sort of public event. And secondly, and most importantly, the tax collector actually refers to the daily sacrifice in his prayer. Now, your translations don't capture this. The tax collector prays, and the way it's translated in your bulletin, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But literally that's not what he's saying. That, that, may, be, that may capture part of the meaning, but that's not literally true. What he's saying, this is a literal translation, O oh God, atone for me, or make reparations for me, a sinner. See, that's, that's referring to the sacrifice. And that's the kind of prayer one would expect to hear at 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. daily in the temple. So, page 11, Roman numeral 1. Two men worship at the Jerusalem temple. They're engaging in worship, and I think it's the public service twice a day, one of those times. And letter A, one, that's the Pharisee, proclaims his deeds. And notice his posture. We're told he's standing by himself. Possibly, and I say possibly, because I've read Pharisees believed that if they even brushed up against someone who was not observant about keeping the law, they believed it would diminish their holiness in some way. They, they believed it would defile them before God, and it, it would render them less clean or even unclean before God. Number two, as I've said before, his obedience exceeds the commandments. Israelites were required to tithe of their agricultural produce, their harvest, their animals, that sort of thing. But this man tithes not only his agricultural produce, he tithes everything he receives, going beyond the law. Number three, he acknowledges his, uh, the sins of others, but not his own. He acknowledges the sins of others, but not his own. And how many of us do the same? How many of us are quick to confess the faults of our neighbor rather than ourselves? And number four, he makes no requests. Apparently, he has need of nothing. It reminds me of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. The church of Laodicea is quoted by Jesus as saying this, I am rich I've acquired wealth, and I have need of nothing. 
Imagine Christians saying that. I have need of nothing. That is not faith. That is faithlessness. To confess our need of God is to confess our faith in God. And number five, his focus is on what he is doing. It's on what he is doing. And notice, in two verses, verses 11 and 12, five times he uses the pronoun I. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I receive. To this Pharisee, worship is all about celebrating what he himself has done, not what God has done or is doing for him. And contrast that letter B, the other person, the tax collector, he proclaims not his deeds, but his needs. His needs. Notice his posture. Now, like the Pharisee, the tax collector is aloof from the people, but I don't think it's because he feels he's better than they are. I think it's because he feels he doesn't really belong in this group of forgiven people. He doesn't feel worthy to stand in the presence of the Lord, but he does because he knows his need. Secondly, we're told he beat his breast. Now, that's something that men would not ordinarily do. Women would often beat their breasts. At funerals, we see that repeatedly in the scriptures. But men would not do this. And I, I believe the tax collector is so grieved by what he has done that he's oblivious to his surroundings. He has thrown off all decorum. His heart is totally in this. Number two, he requests not only mercy, but atonement. He requests reparation, that God would make reparation for his own mistakes, for the tax collector's mistakes, that God, the offended party, would pay the price necessary to make things right. The Greek word here is not the word for mercy, hilaskomai. Literally, it's God makes satisfaction for me, atone for me, a sinner. And it's important, I, I cite Hebrews chapter 10, in which the writer of Hebrews makes very clear that all of these animal sacrifices merely pointed forward to the one true sacrifice. For their efficacy, they were dependent upon the one true sacrifice of Jesus. No animal, no matter how unblemished, can adequately substitute for people. Only another human being without blemish can do that. And that human being is Jesus. His once-for-all sacrifice for the world fulfills what all the animal sacrifices were pointing toward. That sacrifice makes all the other sacrifices effective. That means you and I are already forgiven. We're already reconciled to God. We're justified to God through that sacrifice and that alone. And number three, the tax collector's focus is on what God has done for him. Not what he thinks he's doing for God, but what God has done for him. God himself has atoned for the tax collector's sins and for yours and for mine 
as well. And number four, the tax collector is declared justified. He is declared righteous. He is declared restored and reconciled by the Lord himself, as are all of us. To be justified means to be made right with God, not by our good works, but by faith alone in the good works of Jesus Christ. The Pharisee had plenty of good works, but he did not go home justified before God, while the tax collector had no good works whatsoever, but he trusted in God to make atonement for him through the sacrificial lamb, which pointed forward to the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who actually does take away the sin of the world. My friends, this is Paul's doctrine of justification by grace through faith, which we find throughout Paul's epistles, but it has its roots in the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. Roman numeral two. Just as we've seen two men worshiping in the Jerusalem temple, now in verses 15 through 17, we see infants worshiping before the true temple of God, Jesus Christ. Just as the daily sacrificial lambs pointed ahead to the true sacrificial lamb, our Lord Jesus, so the Jerusalem temple pointed forward to the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. As Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his own body. So letter A, these infants could not bring themselves to Jesus. They were not able to do that. Nor can we adults do that. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And St. Paul has written, No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we adults are in the same position as children with respect to God. Letter B, verse 16, reads literally in this way, Release the children to come to me. It's not just let them come. Release them. It's as if they're being held back by the disciples, and they are. Release them. Stop holding them back. Place them in my arms. Bring them to me, Jesus. Can you imagine anybody trying to keep someone from Jesus? And yet the disciples themselves are doing that in the gospel reading. It's incredible, but it's true. Release the children to me, Jesus says. By the word, uh, that's, that same word, release, is the word most often translated forgive. It's the same word. The word for forgive. Forgive them to come to me. Letter C. This means the highest worship we can offer God is to receive what he has to give. That's the highest worship. It's not a, worship is not about what we do for God. I mean, we do things, for, we offer him our thanks and our praise, but that's a mere response to all that God is doing for us. He bestows his gifts upon us, and we respond in thanks and praise. Worship is first and, forced, first and foremost about what God is doing for us through Jesus Christ. That creates our response of thanksgiving and praise. So the highest worship we can offer him is not to give something to him, 
but to receive what he has to give to us. In Luke 10, what does Mary do? She sits at the feet of Jesus, receiving his words. In John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, but Peter objects. And Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I need to do that for you. You don't need to do that for me. But Jesus replies, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. In other words, unless you receive what I have to give to you, you're not of my sheep. Peter resisted receiving from the Lord, but the little children in our gospel lesson did not resist. The Pharisee in our gospel lesson resisted receiving anything from the Lord, but the tax collector displayed no resistance. He knew he had nothing to give God but his sin, and he gladly received the mercy that God had to give him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 16, we find the parallel account, Mark's parallel account of Jesus' blessing and receiving the little children. And we read in Mark 10 that Jesus took the little children into his arms and he blessed them. That's a bestowal of grace. When you bless someone, you're giving them grace. Did the infants receive the grace? Of course. All they can do is receive. They cannot give. They can only receive. Infants are completely dependent upon what others must give to them. And for that reason, they are not just the perfect model of discipleship, they're the perfect disciples themselves. Letter D, Jesus does not tell children to become like adults. He tells adults to become like children. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And just as little children are dependent upon a higher power, that being parents, so those of us who follow Jesus are dependent upon a higher power, namely God, our Heavenly Father, who acts for us on our behalf through His Son, Jesus Christ. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector may seem unrelated to the blessing of the children, but they really teach one and the same thing. Our inability to provide for ourselves and God's supernatural ability to provide for us all. They teach our complete dependence upon God's mercy, and they teach the assurance of that mercy for all sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what links the parable with the blessing of the children. And in closing, I will say this, Christian maturity consists of this. It is recognizing how dependent and childlike you and I truly are and how all-sufficient and fatherlike God truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.